0: Hey everybody, join us as we delve into our favorite dark tales and paranormal mysteries.
1: Venture with us beyond the safe places that exist in daylight as we go Beyond Beyond the the
0: Shadows. shadows. True crime,
1: paranormal, hauntings, UFOs,
0: cryptids and unsolved mysteries,
1: conspiracy theories,
0: past lives, reincarnation, and all the like are just a few of the topics that we'll tackle.
1: If it haunts your fucking dreams, then it will be on our show.
2: The shadows where you found me at. You can't see me in the deepest blacks. When your heart starts racing, and you see the cracks, all these creepy things that you might attract. All the demons be where the actions at, so listen up if you want it. UFOs, all them ghosts,
0: we got everything that you want and woke. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? Hey and welcome back to Beyond the Shadows, episode 27. Welcome back, Shadow people.
1: This is another bonus episode for you guys. It's kind of a thank you from us for such an amazing July. We had a great month. Yeah,
0: it was We're, a great yeah. month, man. We really appreciate you guys listening and yeah, uh, spreading the show. And It's,
1: it's still shocking to us to, uh, yeah. to realize that so many people are actually listening. No we kidding. We kind of started out just for fun to amuse ourselves and...
0: Yeah, really. And for me, mostly it was seasonal disorder. (laughs) I had something to do. So I built the studio, and here we are.
1: We're absolutely very grateful that you guys are listening, uh, so thank you for that. Yeah, I mean,
0: we're pulling just over 2,000 a month now, so that's just incredible. We can't thank you enough. Absolutely. And I want to thank Ryan for – last week I did the – episode on britney murphy and he let me say subscription like i don't know how many times instead of prescription without uh fixing it yeah so yeah of, i appreciate it that me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's a good time <laughs> what
1: it was during my uh was my zodiac episode you let me call the three uh Witnesses, suspects. Yeah, so take that, bitch. And, and I edited it and still missed it. It was only when I listened to it after it came out, I was like, fuck. <laughs> so anybody else who noticed that, I noticed it too. But yeah, It was way too know. late, so my
0: apologies. We know. Some shit slips through the editing process. <laughs> so real quick, uh, David Grush, it looks like what happened exa- is exactly what he thought was going to happen. It looks like the federal government uh, kind of went after him. You see this, Ryan? Yeah, I did, yeah yeah they con they've gone after his uh mental health looked like he had an issue back in uh i think two thousand and eighteen where he had he has he suffers from p t s d and somehow one of these news outlets got a hold of the fact that you know this is there was a time where he was suicidal and he was dealing with a lot he had just lost a friend who committed suicide yeah. and uh someone leaked this stuff to uh one of these news organizations who put it out just about everybody has something in their background if, if you're going to
1: anti-government or anything against the the grain that they don't like they're gonna dig up something to make you
0: but you know bad. what i <laughs> think when they did this they actually screwed themselves because he had actually recorded about this they just didn't release it yeah. so he actually with the our initial recording he uh recorded some stuff about about it talking about what happened and everything and this isn't the time to go after a soldier for PTSD. No, not at all. That stigma isn't what it was back in the day. I think they played their cards wrong here because I think a lot of people are looking at, like, he came out and said that this happened. And a lot of people are like, yeah, this is, this is what happens when someone goes to war. This doesn't mean he isn't credible. He never lost his security clearance or anything like that. But this just kind of proves his case. It shows that the government's going after him. Just like he said they were, yeah. you know. If anything, this just concretes it more for me.
1: Oh, I don't doubt his word at all.
0: No, I don't either. I th- actually, the fact that this happened just cements it more. I just, it's just, you know, he said that they've made personal attacks on him, and that's exactly what this is.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So, anyways, I just thought I'd mention that before. Ryan's got a story here. Yeah. So last week, we're a little behind on this one. Uh, a Chinese bio lab
1: in Fresno County, California, was raided illegal. Chinese bio lab, I should add. Yeah,
0: yeah, so if you're listening there, a Chinese bio lab, they just happened to find the lab, and they still
1: don't know what the purpose of this lab was. But if it's an illegal bio lab, well, it's, it's safe to say they weren't up to good. You know, what I mean, well, they, weren't, they weren't up to well, let's see,
0: to what, what stuff? would China be doing with a yeah. lab
1: here in the United States? The scary part is how they got some of this stuff here because the containers that they found all had Chinese. Addresses, so they were shipped in from
0: China. So somebody right. at customs dropped the ball because they had some serious shit. And some of the things they had were like uh what they, HIV, they HIV, they different coronavirus, chlamydia, chlamydia, malaria. They, they could have got that from Ryan. Herpes one and five. Now, I didn't even know
1: there was a herpes five. But you know what they say? <laughs> yeah, sure, you did. The fifth one is never as good as the original. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, they had they, all kinds of shit. Yeah, they so. really did. It's this is scary,
1: man. And you know think. the way they found it? Do you in know the article? The uh, the city inspector came by because they had a hose that was improperly stored. He said, so he came, oh, yes, he came to bust that. their balls about a hose and found a fucking lab, yeah, an entire <laughs> bio lab." So the guy, the hose guy, is on his job way more than the guy is at customs. <laughs> <director>. <laughs> I hope that guy got a bonus. Yeah, no shit, right. Yeah, they bumped that, him up to the head of customs now.
0: Just insane to think.
1: That's a scary scenario. The thing is, they, so they found this one. How many more illegal biolabs are kicking around out there that they haven't found?
0: Absolutely, man.
1: They're all securing their hoses right now. You know they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Anybody else who has any more information on that, definitely hit us up beyond the shadows207 at gmail.com. Uh, so for this week's special episode, we're going to do what we're calling the uh, shadows of New England. And uh, there's so many cool things around here in New England. Uh, ghost stories, uh unique people, unique, just all kinds of unique stuff, so we figured we'd cover a bunch of those.
0: yeah, this will probably be a series. we'll probably yeah. do more than one of yeah, these. There's sure. just be a few short stories from each one of us so. And research,
1: and we realized how much there was, so it was hard to choose, so we'll definitely be back with
0: more. yeah, of it's these. like when we do with some of the others. there's some information there's not a ton, you know, a lot of it's folklore, a lot of it's this and that, but it's some interesting stuff absolutely. So. thanks for listening guys. We'll be right back.
2: what the most thing in the world is.
0: Alright, so I have an intriguing tale from the heart of New England. A story that delves into the mysteries of Bucksport, Maine. Nestled amongst its historic treasures lies a remarkable grave. One that carries the legend of Colonel Jonathan Buck, the very man who founded this charming town in 1763. Jonathan Buck was born in Woburn, Massachusetts in 1719, and his journey took him through the bustling streets of Haverhill, Massachusetts, where he grew up. Interestingly, Buck's life wasn't just marked by his founding of Bucksport. He had a history of attempting to launch a shipbuilding business in Haverhill, which didn't pan out. With the dream unfulfilled, Buck set his sights northward to Maine, where he eventually established a settlement. His valor shone during the Revolutionary War as he stood against British forces. (laughs) And as time advanced, the settlement took on the name of its founder. In 1795, Jonathan Buck's chapter on this earth came to a close. Fast forward to 1852, when Buck's descendants sought to honor his memory in a grand way. They erected a monumental gravestone an impressive tribute that was meant to stand the test of time. However, this marker is no ordinary gravestone. It carries an enigmatic stain, one that resembles a boot or lower half of a woman's leg. The origins of the mark lead us down the path of folklore and whispers. By the 1880s, a rumor had begun to circulate. People claimed that Buck had been cursed during his lifetime a story that made its way into a philadelphia newspaper echoing across time the story resurfaced in the pages of the haverville gazette on march 22nd 1899 did i get that wrong again yeah is it haverville haverville i I keep getting that one you you folks in massachusetts (laughs) be nice (laughs) so as the story goes Buck, a very stern judge, had once passed a death sentence on to a woman accused of witchcraft. Undeterred by her imp- impending doom, the woman faced her fate while cursing Buck. In the moments before her passing, she foretold a prophecy. She warned Buck of his impending demise and declared that his grave would bear an indelible imprint of her foot, serving as a lasting reminder of his deeds." This version of the tale captured the imagination, weaving a web of mystery around the stain. Yet, like any tale, variations emerged. Some versions claim that the woman would dance on Buck's grave after his passing, while others painted her as a victim of Buck's action, wronged and seeking revenge. One version, even more lucid, paints a picture of intrigue, infidelity, and curses. Among these ver- versions... One consistent thread emerged: a woman's curse cast upon Buck and etched onto his grave for eternity, for eternity. But here's the twist: there's no concrete evidence that any of these tales hold truth. Jonathan Buck's historical record shows no trace of convicting a woman of witchcraft or committing any of the heinous acts described in the stories. So why does the stain persist, marred by the whispers of witchcraft and vengeance? Some attribute it to the presence of iron in the stone reacting with the atmosphere, creating this particular boot like Mark yet beyond the stain itself. The stories persist as a testament to the power of imagination, of witches' curses and lingering echoes of history. If you look at this grave, it, I mean, the stain really does look like a, like a woman's boot, but I mean, it's, uh, it's quite the story. Actually, there's another version of the story, uh, in this variation of the story, uh, instead of hanging her, he has her burned and her leg falls off and rolls out of the fire at Buck's feet. In another, she was, wasn't a witch at all, just unfortunate enough to be pregnant with his child in a socially unacceptable situation. The witch's execution, an easy fix to his inconvenient problem. And then in another version, her already born and deformed son grabs the leg when it falls off and runs away with it, never to be seen again. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch yeah. of stories about it. And Seriously
1: you, different alternatives right
0: there. Yeah, and y- if you go to Bucksport, you can actually see this grave. It's in town. It's right across from Hannaford's, actually, right next to the only uh, light in town.
1: Bucksport's a nice town, actually. I
0: like it there. Yeah, I guess there's one traffic light right there. Yeah, so if you see that, you'll be able to find the grave. You could park in Hannaford's parking lot. They don't mind. It's, and, it's an interesting story, and it is. it
1: does look like a boot, but when you hear it, you think it's much more convincing than it is. When you see it, it I mean, it looks about
0: as bootish as Italy, maybe a little more realistic. Yeah, it's kind of along those it's lines. It's almost
1: like a kid would draw a boot.
0: And you know? I mean, if you're going to curse someone, what a lame curse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so my mark on my leg is going to be on your no, your dick's
1: going to fall off yeah. or something <laughs> like that. You know, no, that's, that's a curse. That's way scarier. <laughs> but Which no,
0: it's, us back to that it's actually. It's actually. It's number five. Yeah. <laughs> But, no, it's one of those tales that uh, there's signs by the grave and everything. You can see it. They don't mind people going in there and taking yeah. a look at it. I mean, it's the founder of the town. so It's a famous story, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So,
3: In the dark forest lies a secret, told in broken stories by those who are poor witness, a monster, a murder, a long-forgotten homestead. I'm on the search for the ghosts who haunt these places, and I want you to come along. Welcome to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. Here I take an active approach to finding places that people might warn you not to go to. Haunted trails, abandoned towns, old taverns where you might catch a glimpse of a long deceased patron. Look, you're probably not going to find me trekking through Arizona looking to have a run with a skinwalker, and you certainly won't catch me playing with a Ouija board, But. I have spent at least the last 10 years seeking out creepy, haunted, and abandoned places to explore. So lace up your boots, grab a working flashlight, and join me as I tell the tales, hike the trails, and grab a cold pint at the local tavern. You can find the podcast on Apple, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You can find show updates on Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Facebook, and YouTube. And also check out the blog at talestrailstaverns.com. And now, I hope you enjoy the rest of the show.
1: So I'm going to do the uh, leather Man. Uh, New England has a storied history full of colorful characters, and the leather man is definitely no exception. He first appeared in Connecticut around 1857 and became known by the unique clothing that he wore. His pants, jacket, shoes, scarf, and hat were all made of leather, jagged scraps of leather crudely sewn together using large threads. His name is either lost to history or more likely was never known. There are theories and wild stories as to his identity and background, but most of them are clearly folklore and tall tales. The Leatherman was assumed to have been born around 1839 or so. He walked the same repeating 365-mile clockwise circuit year after year through the same towns on the same roads, winter, spring, summer, and fall. People along his route were initially frightened of him and his appearance, but in time, he came to be a welcome and predictable sight. It was said you could set your watch by his arrival, always within the same two-hour window, every 34 days exactly. His route took him through western Connecticut and eastern New York, through the towns of Danbury, New Fairfield, Watertown, Middletown, and New... Canaan? Canaan? I don't know how to say
0: that. Oh, I'm really good with town names. You need some help.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Into Westchester, New York, back to Danbury, and again to New Fairfield. His presence is first mentioned in in an article in the Burlington Free Press as early as April 7th, 1870. He was referred to as the leather-clad man in this article. It mentions that he spoke very little, and when he did, it was only in monosyllables. Others say that he was fluent in French, but did not speak often, preferring to communicate by gestures and grunts. He was known to be friendly, but when asked about his background, he would end the conversation and be on his way again. Those who asked too many questions or offended him would not be visited again, visited again on future stops. Many along his route would provide him food or supplies when he came to town. He would always eat outside, and when offered a place to sleep, he would politely decline. He preferred to sleep in caves or makeshift uh, shelters outside. He also made stops in shops when he needed supplies, although no one knows how or where he earned his money. One store kept a record of his order. One loaf of bread, a can of sardines, one pound of crackers, a pie, two quarts of coffee, one gill of brandy, and a bottle of beer. He was known to be a sober man and was never observed intoxicated. Many towns in those days had tramp laws, outlawing vagrancy and vagabonds, but at least 10 towns along his route are known to have waived their laws as it applies to him. The New York Times said in an August 16, 1884 article, although there is a severe law in this state against tramps, making tramping a state prison offense, no one has ever attempted to put it into force against him.
0: Oh, man, I love tramps. I know. You, that- you
1: can't <laughs> outlaw tramps.
0: <laughs> did I get that wrong? That's cold. Is that not- <laughs> Some of my favorite people.
1: <laughs> the reason is that no one, woman or child, fears him. For we all know that he is a harmless creature, and tradition has it that he never would or never did harm anyone or anything. He has an enviable reputation for honesty and sobriety. The Penny Press of Middletown, Connecticut, agreed, saying he has been a familiar character or curiosity for some years now. And his stated visits through different towns of the state have made him an almost everyday person to a great many people. He's a burden to no one. He is inoffensive in his own way. and He prefers the wilds of the outdoor life to that of being housed. He averaged 10 miles a day despite his leather suit weighing over 60 pounds.
0: Good God. Oh, shit.
1: That's like carrying a pack, man. Imagine wearing 60 pounds of leather in New England in the summer. No. Or, or in the winter. And he right wore it year matter. round, yeah, huh? Yeah. Always in the same outfit. Wow. He stood about five ten and weighed about 170 pounds. He carried a small leather satchel containing all of his earthly possessions, an axe, a small hatchet, a jackknife, an awl, a frying pan, a handmade tin pipe, tobacco, and a French prayer book. He was also known to wear a small crucifix around his neck, and his neck. Newspapers along his route took to reporting his comings and goings on a regular basis, much like modern-day paparazzi. People began to try and interview him, photograph him, and dig up his origins, which is ironic since his solitude and desire to be left alone is what made him famous in the first place. There are multiple surviving photographs of the leather man. One was taken without his knowledge by a teenager in Brantford, Connecticut, Which is impressive with the process being much more lengthy and cumbersome back then. I mean, he didn't just snap a picture. I found some pictures of him, too. Multiple minutes. He was a scary looking dude. uh.
0: Yeah. I found some pictures. I'll post them on our social media. If you were a little
1: kid, you saw that guy coming up in that outfit and all
0: stubbly and he would have creeped you out. Oh, for sure. uh, Almost like Sasquatch coming for sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A few years later, a Middletown, Connecticut photographer took several images of him without his apparent objection and sold them for a quarter apiece, which would be about $10 today. The worst storm the Northeast has ever seen, the Great Blizzard of 1888, three decades into his wanderings, only managed to set him behind schedule a couple of days. That same year, be- people began to notice a growth on his jaw that soon spread across his face into to his neck. It was clearly an aggressive form of cancer, and he could only eat bread soaked in coffee at that point, although he still refused treatment. There was great debate as to whether the le- Leatherman should be treated against his wishes or left alone as he so desired. The do-gooders won out, and he was taken into custody by agents of the Connecticut Welfare Society. Oh, come on. I know, just dude? leave the fucking guy no, alone. No shit. They transferred him by carriage to Hartford to be admitted to the hospital. Once there, he escaped and traveled 25 miles downriver to one of his regular spots and resumed his route. Good for him on march twenty fourth eighteen eighty nine in Mount Pleasant, New York, a curious couple on a farm went to inspect one of the leather man's known spots- a secluded cave when they found his body inside. His wanderings had gone on for thirty years, and he died the way he lived alone and in the wild, a burden to no one disgracefully, he was not put to rest in his leather suit. it was It was purchased by Meehan and Wilson's Globe Museum in New York from the coroner, which is a class move to sell shit that doesn't belong to you. Yeah, right. (laughs) They intended to put it on display in their museum, but it was destroyed in a fire before they could implement their plan. Today, only a few of his items remain in private or historical society collections. One leather mitten, a sack, a tobacco pouch, and his pipe. He was laid to rest in an unmarked grave. In 1937, the site of his grave was located using the memory of the daughter of the man on whose farm he had passed. A marker was placed on the grave, naming him as Jules Bourgelet of Lyon, France. It was a tale that circulated during his lifetime, naming him as a disgraced suitor to the daughter of a wealthy leather speculator in France. He was rumored to have brought financial ruin to the family and fled France, where he surfaced in Connecticut and began his journey. The myth was debunked, and when he was – his grave was moved in 2011, his grave actually proved empty, save for a few nails. Uh, when they put the new marker on after they moved his grave, it mm-hmm. now just says the leather man because that whole Jews bore shit. That wasn't it's, the it's, case. It's crap. So I think it's something somebody made up. I don't know if that was even a real person, but sometimes – Yeah, like I mean I thought the leather these, connection was yeah, a little they much. They want so. to attach these romantic uh-huh. stories to it. The whole leather thing is probably just made up. but. So, they wanted to search his grave for some DNA and hopefully they could solve the mystery once and for all, but there was no DNA. It was an empty grave. So, the other man gets to hold on to his anonymity, which, you know, good for him. That's a cool story, actually. If he wants to go down unknown, then just leave the dude alone, you know?
0: And something that people not from New England may not realize there's a lot of people around here that speak French. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of French Canadians that come down, and there's a lot of French speaking people around here. So, that's not all that uncommon. No, not all. So it doesn't have to be somebody from France. It could just be from, you know, Canada.
1: Yeah. And we don't know that he was from France, just that some some say he spoke French, others say that he didn't speak at all. So it's it's hard to say when you get so many conflicting stories, but he's he was a unique dude, but he didn't bother anybody and even then, people just won't leave him alone. That's all he wants to do. Poor guy just wanted to
0: do his thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They forced him to go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And back in 18-something, what were they really going to do anyways for aggressive <laughs> cancer? Ear nail. No.
2: <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> we'll just burn that off. <laughs>
0: oh, good story, man. Thanks, bud.
1: So this is a Men in Black story from uh, 1976.
0: I want to hear this one. I was unaware of this story.
1: <laughs> the Men in Black are a mystery that goes back decades They tend to show up very shortly after a UFO encounter, usually in two or threes, dressed in all black, driving black cars. Today, it's black helicopters a lot of times, but they interview and tend to intimidate those that witness something. They generally already know the answers to the questions they are asking, and their ultimate goal seems to be intimidation. Not to tell your story to anyone. One of the most famous men in black cases took place in Old Orchard Beach, Maine, on September 11, 1976. 58-year-old Dr. Herbert Hopkins was at home alone for the night, his wife and kids having gone out. He was a known allergist and did much research into the causes of MS. However, recently he had been doing work in an entirely different area, hypnosis. A year earlier in 1975, David Stevens of Oxford, Maine reported that he had been teleported by a UFO, and Dr. Herbert had been consulting on the case. It was something he found unbelievable, yet fascinating. He intended to spend the evening going over the audio tapes of the sessions. His phone rings, and he is greeted by the faint voice of a man who says he is the vice president of the New Jersey UFO Research Organization. He is calling from a phone booth nearby, and since he is in the area, he would love to stop by and discuss the doctor's recent work. The doctor agrees, gives the man his address, and hangs up the phone to go over and switch on the porch light. To his amazement, the man is already mounting the porch steps, despite the nearest phone booth being blocks away. And at this point, cell phones are well in the future, so he wasn't calling from a cell phone, but the fact that he was already there the second they hung up the phone is, you know, odd start. The man was alone, dressed in what appeared to be a brand new suit, impeccably creased, Starched with absolutely nothing out of place. He had on gray leather gloves and a black hat. When the man removed his hat, the doctor saw that his head was perfectly round and completely bald. In fact, the man had not a single hair at all no eyebrows, eyelashes, or facial hair. The doctor also noticed that his skin was extremely pale, almost to the point of being white. His lips were bright red. The doctor would swear later that the man had been wearing lipstick. He had a very small nose and and ears, and the ears appeared to be located lower on the head than normal. They sat across from each other in the living room, and the man began to make the doctor uneasy. He asked many questions about the case he was working on, but already seemed to know all the answers. He had the knowledge that only someone intimately involved in the case would have, although the doctor had told nobody. To all the doctor's statements, he would respond the very same way. Yes, that's the way I understand it. At one point, the man accidentally brushed his lips with his gloves and smeared the lipstick, revealing that he had, in fact, no lips at all. He then pointed to the doctor's pocket and told him that it contained two coins. The doctor was amazed. The man was correct. The man then requested he remove one of the coins from his pocket and hold it in the palm of his hands. The doctor obliged. The man told him to watch the coin, and it soon began to grow fuzzy, changed color, and then disappeared altogether. The man told him that neither he nor anyone else on this planet will ever see that coin again. And then the doctor says the conversation got even stranger. The conversation was steered by the guest to Betty and Barney Hill, the UFO encounter of Exeter, New Hampshire in 1961. Do you know what happened to Barney Hill? asked the stranger. No, I don't, replied Hopkins, except that he died. Do you know what he died from? asked the stranger. A heart attack, maybe? No, that's not entirely accurate. He, did, he died because he knew too much, replied the stranger.
0: I've never heard this story before.
1: Just then, the stranger awkwardly rose and walked unsteadily to the door. His speech began to slur, and he said, My energy is running low. Must go now. Goodbye. He exited the house abruptly, and when the doctor looked outside, he could only see a bright blue light. No sign of the visitor. The doctor took the man's visit and the mention of the hills to be a threat. The man disapproved of his meddling into the UFO case, and he ceased his involvement and subsequently destroyed all his tapes. He later learned that there was no such thing as the New Jersey UFO Research Organization, and he believed, in fact, that the man had been an alien being. The case remains to this day unexplained and one of the best documented cases ever of the men in black.
0: That's crazy interesting. Yeah. I don't know that much about the men in black, to be honest with you. Is that a typical description yeah, man, it sounds some people
1: black? think they're actual government agents that don't want you to talk. That's what I've always thought. But from thought. having read in them a few cases, I've read, you know, maybe six or so, they sound more to me like aliens that yeah, don't like want a you to talk. And they sound something. in, a lot of times they show up immediately, like before the person has even had time to tell a soul.
0: I mean, how the hell do they even know? Yeah, that's interesting. I did, I never knew that side of the Men in Black. Yeah. I've always thought that it was supposed to be government agents. But this this
1: doctor, I mean, he, close, he had a close look, and he was definitely under the impression that it was an alien, not a not a human. And it certainly sounds like it. I mean, the fact the guy was already on his steps after hanging up the phone. How the hell did he get there? What was he talking on?
2: Wow, where, and this Where is, did he go
1: when he left? This is OOB, huh? This is old Orchard Beach.
0: 76, yeah. Wow. I've had some hallucinations out there, but that's not what I was <laughs> you know? That's a big party town. I was too long <laughs> on the pier. Uh, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not that I've but, ever been down. No. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's an interesting story.
1: Hopefully you guys liked it too. Uh, if you have any more to add or any questions about any of the stories or any stories of your own, hit us up at beyondtheshadows207 at gmail.com.
0: All right. We're going to take it to the fire pit.
2: I guess you know what time it is. You can't that fire pit. Fire pit. Fire pit.
0: All right, so this week's fire pit comes to us from Victoria from Mrs. Spooky's Obsessed Podcast. Uh, Vicky communicates on the sociology of our spooky culture. The things
1: we listen to and watch that help create society as a whole have a profound effect on our beliefs, perspectives, and future developments that shape us into the people we are today. The paranormal experiences and stories of the past not only create an impact on me— but also make an impact on you as well.
2: Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Kelly. And
0: if you're looking for a super fun, awesome podcast to listen to, check us out. All All Things things Outrageously outrageously Dark, dark, Scary, scary, Beautiful, and Totally totally true. True.
2: One day during midsummer of June 2007, this was the year I had just finished being a freshman in high school and was on my way to becoming a sophomore. And of course, it would be such a girl thing to be on the phone with your close friend to talk about boys, right? Well, one night, a friend of mine called, and as we were having our conversation about a specific dude, I decided to go outside my house for two very different reasons. I didn't want my mom hearing that I had a crush on this one senior and the service inside my house sucked. I mean, I was living in my grandparents' house at the time, and so I go outside to talk more privately. My family had three dogs, and as I was just chilling out there minding my own business, it didn't dawn on me that at that moment, my dogs were aggressively barking at this one car my aunt owned. So to get a background story, my aunt bought this one car that was from another relative of ours who was going to be using the money to buy a family vehicle. This car was an older model, but I can't remember the type. For sure, it was from the late 90s to early 2000s. While I had the phone glued to my ear, my attention finally turned to the direction the dogs were barking so frantically at. That something caught my gaze. I realized my dogs were only barking at one side of the vehicle, and it was the driver's seat. The more I stared, the more I was able to make out the image in front of me. A dark shadow was sitting inside, but I noticed the hands that were holding on to the steering wheel were slender and pointy. Looking up, I saw a creepy, sinister smile, and I thought, holy crap, Someone is inside the car, but I couldn't look away, especially for the fact that the more I stared at the face, that was when I realized it wasn't your typical everyday black shadow. This dark entity had large horns on top of its head. This demonic looking thing was just staring back at me, smiling, and I run inside my house. My attention went from such a stupid thing. To a serious encounter. The only reason I was able to make out this demon in front of me is the fact that it literally had an absence of color. It was darker than black. I saw the silhouette perfectly. I go inside my house. I tell my family about it. And they go out there with holy water, a bat, and a small handgun. Do not blame us for that. We were nothing but girls in the household no men whatsoever but as my mom and my aunt investigate the car was as if no one had even entered there was no foul smell no fingerprints no footprints nothing they didn't dismiss it but we couldn't do anything about it either so we we just tried to sleep it off in a matter of days that followed my neighbor may she rest in peace was this elder woman who was a rancher type lady she has seen everything in the backwoods because that was her upbringing. So she wasn't one to be spooked very easily. However, she called my mom up one day asking, who was the tall, shadowy figure that has been hovering over my aunt's car? She had seen this thing for a few nights in a row. My mom and aunt were like, mm, no way, this, this can't be a coincidence. It's silly. After that, another relative of ours called my aunt, asking frantically how the family was. Are we okay? Is anyone hurt? Are we going through something? Well, it turns out her son, my cousin, for a few nights in a row that same week, had been having strange dreams about the car and seeing this tall, dark entity stalking the car. I'm not sure what was with this car, but there were three people in a row in a matter of days contacting the family that there was something attached, and it was definitely an evil one. My aunt decided to sell the car, to whom? I'm not sure, but never again did we have the experience. In the following year, March, April, and May, I kept having these weird dreams about death, funerals, church, and cemeteries. I had no understanding of this at the time, but I also had no idea that the meaning of these dreams were a sort of premonition of the future. The last dream I had was of the Virgin Mary. In our Hispanic culture, she is of high importance, especially to this one man in my life whom I hold dear. Her statue was floating above water, and the dream was so peaceful. The thing about this statue is that it was gifted to my mom a few years prior. Exactly one year after the demonic encounter on June 29th, 2008, just 20 days before my 16th birthday, my mom got a call from the Utah law enforcement. Mind you, we live in Texas. This gentleman gave her bad news that my father had passed away from a car accident. The brakes in his work truck had stopped functioning properly, and that's because he had already made complaints about it, but was neglected. He was driving down this supposed horrible path with dangerous hills or mountains, I'm not too sure, that suffers from bad weather. He lost control of the drive. The road was said to be so slippery that his truck fell over two football fields. His body was so burnt and in pieces that they almost couldn't identify him. They were barely able to make out his information through his driver's license. As I got older, I started to piece the puzzle together. The dream of the Virgin Mary statue was in connection to my dad because, as I said, that was his gift to my mom. The time that I saw the demon to the time of my dad's death was only a year apart. And I was the only one of the three witnesses that saw a nasty spirit inside my aunt's car. This signified that a tragedy was about to happen, not soon, but in time, that my dad's death was going to correlate to a car accident. Was the sighting of the demon telling me something about the future that I was still too naive to understand as a young teen? Or was this demon letting me know that there was a soul he was going to collect and it was going to take with him the death of a loved one? You tell me, as I still try to understand the meaning of the demonic entity that came from beyond the shadows.
0: Wow, that's a crazy story. Really crazy story. Yeah. Sorry of all, to hear about your father. That's Very sorry to hear about your yeah, father. Yeah, that's, that's terrible, but the story is really crazy. That's deep. Very deep,
1: yeah. Um, was it a warning? is her question. Again, that's mine as well. And secondly, if it was a warning, could anything have been done?
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know that anything could have been done. But in their culture, that's pretty typical for yeah. uh, something like that as a warning. Uh, yeah, but even, even if you take it as a
1: warning, uh, you don't know what or when. So how do you stop it? I don't I think mean, I, mean, I don't think that you can. You
0: can't rewrite the future, especially when you don't know what the warning is. Right. Uh, wow, it, really interesting story. We really appreciate you uh, sharing that with us. Yeah, it's definitely a personal story. We definitely appreciate that. And again, sorry for your loss. Uh, and guys, go over check out her podcast. It's a really good one. You'll like it. That's the Mrs. Spooky Obsessed podcast. Check All that right.
1: out, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you again, for, uh, Vicky, for the story. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed this uh, special episode, and uh, we'll catch you next week.
0: See you in the next one.